Well, this morning we're going to continue with part three of the series, which I've entitled The Philippian Church, a Model for New Hope Chapel. And this morning's message is titled, Walking the Life. My text is the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. Someone mentioned, where are the little handouts? I actually had them prepared, but I thought I would do something different. Because sometimes we don't need outlines. We have the scripture that gives us the very outline that that Bob and I would use to come up with the sermon. Remember I've said before, I look to see what the verses say, and that's my outline, and then I try to fill it in with meat. But the reality is this. Micah 6.8 says this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We have a three-part sermon. And so walk with me as I always do through Psalm 1914. So, dear Lord, this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen? You know, something wonderful And something kind of strange happened to me when I was 36 years old. It happens to everyone who makes the decision to become a follower of Jesus. I didn't realize this so much at the time, what a wonderful thing had happened to me. But looking back on it, in a way, I have focused on something that was strange and it did happen immediately afterwards. And that was that I was not immediately taken up into heaven. Unless you are on your deathbed or you're a thief being crucified alongside in a cross alongside of Jesus before your death, you probably not didn't happen to you either. It didn't hit me <clears throat> at that time. But you know, as you walk and you develop, you begin to question certain things that pop up and you begin to, there's a question that arose and that's this. If God loves me so much that he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for me and he wants to take me to heaven, why didn't he? Why doesn't he go ahead and do it? The very fact that he didn't tells me that he still had something for me to do here on earth. And the very fact that I'm still up here standing tells me that he wants me to live in the here and now for a specific purpose. Now you can summarize the life of a Christian in three words. In the meantime. In the meantime, between the time you are saved and the time he takes you up to heaven, what does God want from you? What does God expect from you? What is the life that God wants you to live? And we don't have to wonder, we don't have to guess, because there is a magnificent verse in the Old Testament where God specifically tells us what he requires of us. Again, our text, Micah 6, 8. It states, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
And then we can read on and we note that there are three requirements. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Here's a little education. The last 12 books in the Old Testament were written by prophets, and they're called minor prophets. I think I can safely say that most Christians can't name them, and probably most Christians haven't read most of them. So let's be honest. You're more than likely to have read Matthew than Micah, more likely to have read John than Joel, more likely to understand and read Acts than Amos. And yet some of the greatest biblical principles and truths found anywhere in Scripture are found in these books, and they are anything but minor. And the verse we're going to study this morning may be the greatest single verse of all the prophets. You hear it in political speeches. You, you see it on bumper stickers. It's probably recited somewhere every day, somewhere on this planet. And there's a good reason for it. Big things come in little packages. And even though this is one verse, in three sentences it answers the big question of how God wants us to live in the meantime. In order to properly understand this verse, we need to remember something as believers. A follower of Jesus is someone who has responded to the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus has died for our sin, physically raised from the dead, and if we place our faith in him, we will be saved, forgiven, and we will receive eternal life. And more importantly, we will have a relationship with God. Now, what a lot of Christians fail to understand, that is where the gospel starts not where the gospel ends. See, the gospel not only tells us we are to relate to God, it also tells us and shows us how we are to relate to others. In other words, there is a vertical appropriation of the gospel followed by a horizontal application of that same gospel. And the gospel is not something that you just believe in. It is something that you live God not only seeks to justify people who are lost and without him, God is also seeking justice for all people, whether they accept him or not. And we have a biblical responsibility to do all that we can as believers to make this world a better place to live. We are both to advance the gospel to the soul and the goodness to the suffering. But let me be clear. I do not believe in what is classically known as the social gospel. I do believe that the gospel is sociable. Our primary responsibility is the salvation of the soul, but it is also our calling to give strength to the suffering, food to the hungry, water to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, justice to the oppressed. And once you have truly experienced the grace of God, These are not things that you have to do. These are things that you want to do. Jesus did. He literally came to seek and to save those who were lost. But when they were hungry, he fed them. When they were thirsty, he gave them water to drink. When they were sick, he healed them. When they were hurting, he touched them. With that in mind, what are we to do in the meantime? 
So first, consider in our text, we are to do justly. You know, Micah begins by asking the question of all questions. He states, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? You know, once you become a believer, what does the Lord require of you? How do you know you're living the life that he wants you to live? How do you know he is pleased with the way you are conducting your affairs? The first requirement is sound simple, but I believe that it's profound, especially in the day in which we live. He says, act justly. Now the word for justice or justly is spelled M-I-S-H-P-A-T, it's pronounced mispah. And it's found over 200 times in the Old Testament. It simply means that you are to treat people equitably. But it also means that you are to advocate that they are to be treated equitably. <clears throat> For example, Exodus 12.49 states, you are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native-born. The word used for the same law is the same word that is used for justice. In other words, Israel was to have the same law for everybody, whether they were Israelites or foreigners, and everyone was equally protected under the law. Justice was to be blind to your race, to your socioeconomic status, to your level of education, and most certainly to your religion. See, justice was to show no partiality. Now, think about this. Normally, when you think about the word justice, you primarily think of giving people what they deserve. One aspect of justice is that people who do wrong are punished. But there is another aspect of justice, and that is wrong is going to be punished, but the rights of people are to be protected. You know, one of the greatest kings that ever lived wrote these words in Proverbs 31.9, which state, Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So justice is giving people what they are due, whether it is punishment or protection. And every time you find this word, mispah, in the Old Testament, four classes of people keep coming up. And these are, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. And back in those days, those four groups, widows, orphans, immigrants, and poor people, they had no social power, they had no political influence, they had no financial strength. They basically lived at a poverty level, and many of them were just a couple of weeks away from starvation. And today, I think we could expand that list to include refugees, the homeless, single parents, and elderly people. You know, simply put, the measuring stick of goodness, whether you are an individual or a nation, is the care, concern, and compassion of the least and for the lost, for the oppressed and the prisoner, for the poor and the immigrant. And yes, we should become involved in the issues of poverty, unemployment, homelessness, hunger, racism, prostitution, slave marketing, and of course, abortion. These babies are the least protected in our society. 
You know, the womb was considered one of the safest places for babies in days of old. Almost 65 million babies have found that not to be true. 65 million have found that not to be true in this country. Can you imagine what the numbers are worldwide? FDA continues to approve medication. You can just pop an abortion pill you pick up at the local store. Who's going to count those numbers? That's why I'm essentially delighted with our Christian ministries worldwide. You know, we Christians do give food and clothing to the needy. We do minister to the homeless. And I think when we look to our prison ministries throughout the world, it highlights the fact that prisoners are being visited, they're getting the gospel preached to them, and they're getting words of encouragement. But what I found amazing in all these little studies is that in virtually all of the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was identified not with the outcasts, that is the widows, the orphans, and the aliens, but with the elites, the people in political power, the generals, the kings, the wealthy. But the God of Israel identified with the orphan, the widow, the alien, and the poor. Unlike every other little false god that pagans worshipped, the big true God of Israel was on the side of the powerless and the poor as we should be. Now, to be clear, we are to evangelize. We are to spread the gospel. We are to tell people about Jesus. That is always our number one mission. But we're not only to seek the sheep that is lost. We are also to minister to the Samaritan on the side of the road. Consider secondly in our text, to love mercy. You know, the first requirement of justice describes action. And the second requirement, love mercy, describes our affection. We are to act justly and to love mercy. Notice how we're not just to show mercy. We are to love mercy and to love to show mercy. And we are to love it when others receive mercy. You know, by the way, Justice and mercy actually go together. You know, it looks at first as if we're talking about two different things, but we're not. The word justice refers to God's own unconditional grace and compassion for other people. It refers to the action. Mercy refers, as I said, to the affection behind the action. You should want justice and do justice out of a merciful love for other people. If you look at the Hebrew words involved, we look at mercy, and it is spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, but it's pronounced he said. And it is a beautiful word in the Old Testament. It is used over 250 times, and one English word alone can't translate it. You know, sometimes it's called mercy. Sometimes it's called love. Sometimes it's called kindness. And in fact... Most translators will translate it into two words. They call it loving kindness. Now let's be honest. We all want justice when somebody does us wrong. We want mercy and grace when we do others wrong. 
previous sermons, I have mentioned that justice is when you give people what they deserve. Grace is when you give people what they don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't give people what they deserve. What our text is saying is our first inclination should be when people do us wrong is to give them what they don't deserve. If you are not, you know, instead of cutting them up, we need to cut them some slack and show them mercy. And the bottom line is this. When you love mercy, you will live mercy. And you know why living mercy and giving mercy is so important? Because if you're not a merciful person, one thing or two things will be true about you and your life. You will be judgmental and you will be bitter. There is something liberating about being merciful. There is something liberating about treating the lowest and the littlest and the the least with kindness and with mercy. There was a mother that went to Napoleon to ask her, to ask him to pardon her son. And Napoleon said it was the man's second offense and he did not deserve anything but death. The woman said, sire, I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. Napoleon responded, but he doesn't deserve mercy. To which she said, yes, sir, you're right. But it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. I plead for mercy. For some reason, that touched Napoleon's heart. And then he said, I will show mercy, and her son was spared. So I tell you, yes, let's punish the evildoers. Yes, let's confront wrong and evil wherever you find it. But whenever you can, wherever you can, and to whomever we can, let us love mercy enough to show it and to give it. And third in, your, in our text, to live humbly. So the last requirement is this one, and this is the one we really should expect, and it is to walk humbly with your God. But I want you to notice something. If you leave God out of this equation, it won't work. And it's important that you get this. What this is, is not what is required of you to be saved or to be right with God. This is not the performance that you are to give to be right with God. This is the proof that you are right with God. You can't know justice until you've been justified by the judge of the universe. You can't love mercy until you have personally experienced the mercy of God. You cannot walk humbly with God until you first walk with this God and surrender your life to him. And these things are not what you do in order to be saved. These are things what you are to do if you have been saved and after you have been saved. You know, to walk in the Bible is nothing more than a metaphor for the way you live your life. And we're to walk humbly. We are Humility, I think I should tell you, is a tricky thing. Because the moment you think you are humble, you're not. The moment you say you are, you're not, because humility starts 
with realizing that anything you are, anything you do, and anything you achieve, which is of value, is because of the God that lives in you, the God who works for you, and the God who walks with you, and you with him. I was reading a little story here of, the, of a CEO, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, because that's a big muck to the muck. He pulled into a service station to fill up his car with gas. He was with his wife. And then he went inside to get something to drink, and when he came out, he noticed that his wife was talking to one of the fellows that worked at the service station. It turned out that she knew him. And in fact, when they were in high school, she dated him. And in fact, they were in line to get married to each other. Well, she and her husband got into the car and they drove off, and this husband CEO was feeling pretty good about himself. He said, I bet I know what you're thinking. I bet you're thinking you were glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, and not some guy that works at a gas station. She said, no. I was actually thinking, if I married him, he would have been a Fortune 500 CEO and you would have been working in a gas station. <laughs> you see, real humility comes from understanding who you are in relation to who God is. And when you walk with the God of this universe, you realize that you would be nothing with him, without him, lost without him, undone without him, and helpless without him. And believe me, there would be no room for pride. Now, do you know what's wrong with America today? We still have so much pride. We think that education and legislation can solve our problems and that we can act justly and love mercy without God, without knowing God at all. Understand, I believe in a good education. I believe in good legislation. But education, however good it is, will not make anybody just or merciful or good. You may wind up to be a thief, but then all you can be or will be is a smart thief. Legislation won't do it either. Consider that Martin Luther King said it perfectly. He said this, quote, Morality cannot be legislated. Only behavior can be regulated. Judicial decrees may not change the heart, but they can restrict the heartless. In other words, the law cannot make an employer love me, but it can keep him from denying me a job because of the color of my skin. You know, when you know the judge who justifies, then you will act justly. When you have experienced the mercy of a compassionate God, then you will love mercy. You know, one of my heroes, and I think one of the greatest men who's ever lived, was an African-American man named Booker T. Washington. And parents, you should teach your children and grandparents teach your grandkids about Booker T. Washington. I think he was perhaps the most famous black man on the planet. He once shared tea with the Queen of England, and he was the first black man to be invited to dine with the president in the White House, and that was Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt paid him perhaps the highest compliment anyone can be paid. 
He said this, quote, Of any man I have ever met, he has lived up to Micah's verse. What more does the Lord require of him than to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with his God? End of quote. You know, one incident that may explain why he said that, Booker T. Washington was in Des Moines, Iowa, and he was speaking to standing up room only in several churches and, and an opera house, and he was, the, he was the talk of the town. In the evening, he was in the lobby of the hotel where he was staying, and a woman came up to him and thought he was working as one of the hotel staff. She asked him for a glass of water. Well, instead of identifying himself and who he was, he went and he got her a glass of water. And then he came back and he asked her one more thing. He said, is there anything else that I can get for you? You see, Booker T. Washington was a devout Christian who knew Jesus, lived for Jesus, and walked with Jesus. What he did was just like Jesus would have done. Listen, this verse is all about Jesus. Knowing that justice demanded payment for the penalty of sin, even though he had not sinned, he died for our sins. He was acting justly. For the ones who were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them, because he loved mercy. And the night before he was crucified, Knowing that his disciples would desert him, he got on his knees and he washed their feet because he was walking humbly. Well, listen, Micah 6, 8, it's not just a requirement. It is a recipe to live the best life you will ever live, the happiest life you will ever know, and the greatest life you will ever achieve, and that is what we are to be doing in the meantime. Amen? Well, service is over. How do you tell a body to go out and become Micah 6 8 people? You have an idea, practice it, and you will slowly convert New Hope Chapel into the Philippian church, which is the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Thank you. See you next week.